Hi, I'm Brian Vines, and this is 112BK. Coming up, from A to Z, Amazon is bent on world domination. And now, they're coming to Queens. But not everyone is celebrating. It's not just that Amazon's presence in a city can have these side effects, it's that Amazon itself has shown very little interest in fixing the problems that it has created. And then New York City's first nightlife mayor and the council member responsible for creating this new job. Uh, I thought it was important for us to put a plan in place that would help uh, retain those uh, important businesses and important spaces that make New York City so great and what makes New York City the city that never sleeps. Hi, and welcome to the show. Word is that the decision on the Amazon HQ2 has been made. Not one, but two cities have won the coveted prize. It'll be a split between headquarters in Arlington, Virginia, and Long Island City. But hold that confetti for just a second. Because as internet giants increase footprints across the city, it was also just announced that Google is growing its Chelsea home. Now, many people are concerned about what will come with this tech boom, like increased rents and tax abatements for those who don't really deserve them. To tell us more about what this move might mean, we're joined on the phone by a reporter who recently wrote an article for Vox, Amazon HQ2. The many layers of backlash against the company's expansion explained. Gabby Del Valle, welcome, and thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So Amazon is coming, and there's nothing we can do about it, presumably. Why do you think the city and the state have gone so hard for Amazon when Walmart has got such a cold shoulder in the past? Um, well, just to be clear, Amazon hasn't actually announced that they're going to be coming to New York City yet, okay. but there's a lot of credible reporting that shows that they will be. And, you know... Um, Based on what I've seen about Amazon, anyone who has worked on this deal is under NDA still. (laughs) But we should operate under the assumption that Amazon is coming and there's nothing we can do about it, as you said. I think there are a lot of reasons why Amazon is getting such a warm welcome. And the first one is just the fact that Jeff Bezos has sold this. It's such a great deal for whichever city wins the national contest, Um, you know, 50,000 jobs. $5 billion headquarters, all of that. And until very recently, and by that I mean within the past couple of years, there there wasn't as much discussion of Amazon as the kind of company that treated its workers poorly or destroyed local businesses. Obviously, that stuff has been in the news for, you know, the past couple of years, but Amazon is still, it's newer. Mm -hmm. It has less of a stigma, I think, than Walmart does, even though the company in recent years has kind of been developing that stigma as well. So let's look at some of uh, the history then. Amazon currently is set up with their headquarters in Seattle. Is there anything we can learn from their impact there in Seattle that may be a cautionary tale perhaps for Queens when the announcement is firmed up? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you look at the cost of homes in Seattle and even rents, they've absolutely skyrocketed since Amazon not only established its headquarters there, but especially over the past seven years, I would say, rents have gone up a lot. The public transit system's really congested, but more like vehicle traffic because it's 
I would say, a less accessible city than New York, for sure. And another big issue in Seattle has been an ongoing homelessness crisis, which critics of Amazon say is partially influenced by the rampant development and growth in the Seattle area, which has led to gentrification and displacement, partially because Amazon employees are really well-paid, really highly compensated, and their presence in Seattle has made it more expensive there for everybody else. So looking at that Seattle example, we know there were some folks who are in the activist community, particularly here in Brooklyn, who were saying, listen, we don't want any corporate welfare for these guys. We can use all of that money towards things like education and improving housing. And it seems as though maybe the mayor got the memo, but our governor has made a package that is up until this very moment, not disclosed. Do we have any idea what might be in that package to sort of sweeten the New York deal? We don't know for sure, but given the other packages that were disclosed, other cities offered Amazon millions, if not billions of dollars in tax breaks, deals for development, all all of these things that make activists really wary and make them think like, why does a company this big get these tax breaks when they should be offering New York something in exchange for being allowed to set up shop here. And I think something else that should be taken into consideration is that it's not just that Amazon's presence in a city can have these side effects. It's that Amazon itself has shown very little interest in fixing the problems that it has created. In Seattle, for example, the company helped kill a tax that would have helped alleviate the homeless problem that it partially caused. So activists aren't just worried that Amazon could have negative effects here, but that it would then not be held accountable for those things. So looking at the whole in landscape, is this going to be a net gain? Are we expecting people to proceed with caution or folks organizing around the idea that we really don't need this in our backyard? I I think it's still too soon to say because, again, we don't know what the deal is. I don't want to jump the gun and will be bad. But I do think that activists have expressed plenty of valid reasons for for being concerned and upset about the Amazon deal. And I mean, if you look at the state of the subways right now, if you Mm -hmm. look at the state of housing in the city right now without Amazon, not that Amazon doesn't have a small presence here, but without Amazon bringing in 25,000 plus employees, things are not really great right now as it is. Having Amazon come to the city could have been an opportunity to generate tax revenue that we could have used to fix schools or housing or transportation or what have you. And instead, it seems like the company is getting incentives that will decrease the amount of revenue, that will decrease its ability to give back to the city. And the governor didn't even have to change his name to Amazon Cuomo. (laughs) No, he didn't. And I don't think he, he changed the Newtown Creek to the Amazon River either, which I think it would have been kind of insulting because it's really polluted. (laughs) To the Amazon, yes. Well, Gabby DeValle, thank you so much for the article, and we'll continue to uh, look for updates as you stay on the story. Yeah, thank you again for having me. All right, bye-bye. When one city council member surveyed the landscape of New York City's nightlife, he didn't like what he saw antiquated cabaret laws that made dancing illegal, bar and club closures caused by gentrification, and the overregulation of our storied establishments. 
It was tarnishing the city's reputation for DIY club culture, local music, and a party scene envied worldwide. What to do, what to do? Well, appoint a new mayor, not to oversee the city, but to advocate for what the city does at night. Thus, the night mayor was born. And she joins us today. Ariel Pallets, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. And just to be clear, that council member was Rafael Espinal. Welcome back to 112BK, sir. Thank you, man. So we're glad to see that you guys are an act right now, a one-two punch to save, regulate, and really restore New York's nightlife back to its former glory and move it into the future. So you had an idea, now you've got a partner. Yeah, I mean, uh, I consider myself the night legislator, right? <laughs> She's the nightmare. But um, I, I thought that it was important that the city finally did something to address uh, the issue and the facts that a lot of our favorite venues and clubs and bars were closing their doors for a host of reasons. Uh, one is because of overregulation, and mm -hmm. two, because of the fact that the, the price to be able to run a business in New York has skyrocketed. So uh, I thought it was important for us to put a plan in place that would help uh, retain those uh, important businesses and important spaces that make New York City so great and what makes New York City the city that never sleeps. So when the council member proposed this position, people from far and wide were tweeting, Instagramming, sending them messages like, I should be the nightmare, but you've got the bona fides. I partied myself at Sutra back in the day. Oh, that's great. So what made you stand up and say, hmm, this might be the job for me? Well, um, obviously, I was very excited to hear about the opportunity. And when I went on NYC.gov to look at the uh, job description, basically, it was the story of my life. It really looked like my resume um, and everything I had been through and had prepared for. Mm -hmm. And so I felt compelled to apply. So looking at the arc of your career and what seemed to be a job tailor-made for you, if you were a young person entering the industry right now, would you have been able to have the same trajectory with the way that the New York City nightlife scene is at present? Well, owning and operating a nightlife establishment is going to be hard no matter what. I would like to think I would be able to pull it off. It is an extraordinarily challenging proposition. I wouldn't want to dissuade anyone from trying, mm -hmm. um, and hopefully with the creation of this office, we will be making it easier. Council members, speaking of not dissuading people from trying, you saw a need in your community where places that we were used to culturally exploring and going to and really being part of the community were overburdened by some really sort of onerous protections and uh, penalties that were coming out of maybe something that was well-intentioned but we were suffering losses of places we rely on in our communities. Yeah, we I mean, we were not only losing our businesses, we were losing uh, young people who, who found the city attractive, uh, those that were born and raised here and those who, who came from far away to want to be, to be part of that scene. Uh, we're moving to smaller cities where they felt it was easier to do their art, to open their business. Um, and I thought it was time that the city took this seriously and figure out, you know, instead of 
over-regulating our, our establishments, let's find a way where we can finally work with them to figure yeah. out how do we keep those doors open. I think that the wrong thing to do is to you know enforce in order to deal with problems. We should bring those problems to light and figure out how can we uh, give a helping hand to make sure those problems will continue being an issue in those communities. What made you know Williamsburg so so popular and Brooklyn it was the music scene that that was born in the early 2000s. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of indie rock and roll. Uh, right now, big dance community. Uh, all over the borough that exists and we have to make sure we, we we are able to create those spaces for them to be able to create you know i think that we should look at the, the products that, that come out of our nightlife scene if you go date back to the 30s uh, the harlem jazz renaissance that happened up there it happened because these venues existed if you look at uh you know the 70s and 60s the rock and roll scenes uh, the ramones punk rock lou reed velvet underground yeah. early 90s hip-hop late 80s hip-hop in the bronx i mean if you speak to all of those artists they'll tell you that the reason that they have their careers and were able to create what they've what they've produced is because of those spaces that existed across the five boroughs. Yeah, tied to a place. To pull on one of your points, I've been in Detroit where they claim, oh, it's the new Brooklyn. I've been in Jersey <laughs> City. It's the new Brooklyn. But we know your office is focusing on more than just Brooklyn, although, you know, first among equals here. Looking at that, what is it going to take to bring Brooklyn back to being the Brooklyn of Brooklyn or any of the other places around the city? Like what what concrete steps do you think it is going to take to make sure that we are a hub again for all of those artistic movements that were birthed because of the physical plan in New York? Well, I think the very creation of the Office of Nightlife in and of itself is the right first step. I think the fact that there was never a central point of contact for city agencies in the industry, patrons, performers, and residents to be able to look to for guidance and support mm -hmm. was a big void in the puzzle and the ecosystem of keeping nightlife healthy and vibrant and safe. So I'm extremely grateful to be able to be in this position. And with that said, I think echoing what Raphael said, it's really about um, managing and supporting the industry um, and community rather than enforcing it, utilizing the great services that the city has and the city agencies that are there to help make sure that it's safe and that traffic's flowing and that it's not too loud and that it can mm -hmm. assimilate within the residential communities to, in order to be allowed to be able to thrive in a way that doesn't have such a strong impact that would create a resistance. Right. Um, and uh, really being able to respect the importance of needing to create and make and hold space for creativity and culture to be born and to thrive. Mm -hmm. So that's where I really see the office being able to be utilized is to be this central point of contact, a liaison, right. and being able to connect the dots in order to create this environment of support where it can thrive. So how do you keep that from not being a bureaucratic nightmare where people are like, oh man, the city, it's not cool. How do you maintain that independent spirit, that was so much a part of every movement that you talked about while still making sure the city is there providing services and guiding things and keeping a balance between birthing all of those things and making sure that we still have a livable city for folks 
who go to bed after the 11 o'clock news. I mean, I think that it's important to know that in order to have a livable city, we do, we do need nightlife. It's part of the ecosystem that makes New York City so great, right? I and concur, yeah. I think that aside from the culture, which is what, it's what's very important to me, what drove me to create this office, we also should look at the financial aspects of it as well. Mm -hmm. uh, nightlife is responsible for creating over 100,000 jobs. A lot of uh, folks, immigrant folks who are looking for that first entry job in, into our city are able to work in the kitchens, are able to work in these venues. So besides the culture, there is a financial aspect that's take very uh, seriously. And to speak to the bureaucratic uh, issues, it, it's already a mess. Mm -hmm. And what this office is going to do and what Ariel is going to do is figure out how uh, the city could be a better partner, untangle the red tape and, and the hoops that people have to jump through, and make sure that there's an easier path to opening up a venue and also keeping that venue open. So some of the best parties I've been to in my life have not exactly been in up to standard code places in New York. How do we find a balance there for making sure that places like that can still exist and we can still say safe, but you know, so it can still be New York, mm -hmm. make it cool, not sanitized. We don't all want to party in Times Square kind of thing. Well, I think a very large part about why the office was created was with the DIY underground sort of quasi-legal spaces yeah. in mind. From my perspective, we're looking to other cities around the country as well as the world that have managed to find systems and programs in place. Right now, we're looking at Denver that has a program that helps to allow for conditional certificates of occupancy. Condi sort of like a pop-up. Potentially, yeah. but conditional on, on the fact that there are not life-threatening gotcha. security issues because I think it's really important and it's really cool to have underground creative spaces where there is living and creating on the edge, but we also always have to make sure that it's safety first. So it is that fine line of being able to make sure that there are leniencies and, and support for that while also making sure that it's safe at all times. So we know you guys have been on a listening tour so far. You've hit Brooklyn, you've been in Queens and Staten Island. So what have you learned here that may be a little bit different than the other two boroughs that you visited so far? Is there anything particular about the folks who showed up at Brooklyn to be heard than the other concerns raised in other parts of the city? I mean, I'll, I'll, let, I'll let Ariel speak to that, but I think what I what I saw in Brooklyn, and yeah. I, I think you don't see everywhere else, is that there is a huge underground culture, and we uh, have to make sure that they're being listened to, and we're doing everything we can to provide them with the space they need to continue throwing these great parties that produce the culture that, that makes the city so great. Yeah, there's a great quote going around uh, that was attributed to our borough president that was apparently backed up by Con Ed that said New York in New York, Brooklyn is the only borough where electricity usage <laughs> goes up after seven. So mm -hmm. we are the nightlife people. So what'd you hear at your listening session in Prospect Heights that might be a little different from what they said in Queens? Well, I think we had a really robust turnout that really was a diverse representation of the entire ecosystem. We had operators and employees and patrons and really being able to hear from everyone and their perspective and their challenges. Mm -hmm. And even though it's a borough to borough 
tour, there really are universal concerns about affordability and about even from the artist perspective about being able to have access to venues like that from residents being able to maintain safety and quality of life. I mean, obviously, Brooklyn is unique in and of itself. But I think um, from an industry perspective, we're really looking at how to make all of these stakeholders and the ecosystem work in harmony and cooperatively and in partnership to support this industry that's important to the economy, the culture, and our city's identity. So looking at the entire landscape and taking into account the economic driver that it is, we also have some very real statistics from 311 with folks calling with their complaints about what's happening in their immediate universe from that mom who doesn't want her kids to have to walk over stuff, mm -hmm. uh, getting to school versus folks who are saying it's too loud, shut things down right now. So looking at the totality of the situation, how do you bridge that gap and show folks those real numbers and the impact that it has, and they are weighing, I still want to go to sleep kind of thing. I think it's important that we note that the office is not simply about uh, supporting the nightlife establishments. Mm -hmm. It's about making sure that we create a livable city where uh, folks that want to go to bed early and the nightlife establishments can live side by side with the understanding that there's value to protecting both of them, right? So we have to look at city planning. How do we uh, ensure that moving forward when a city uh, looks to rezone communities or, or allow development in certain neighborhoods, that that development is responsible for putting in proper soundproofing, for example, so that residents who live in those buildings do not have to inconvenience the, the establishments by calling 311. We should look at uh, making sure that there is more services and cleaning up neighborhoods that have, you know, hot areas like the LES, for example. Right. Sanitation should be working to making sure that they're cleaning the streets, you know. So it's it's a matter of providing services that are actually going to address all these quality of life complaints and the city actually being serious mm -hmm. uh, of, of recognizing that nightlife is something we should be supporting just like any other industry in the city. So can we split a few hairs talking about this cabaret law for a second. Now, when it was first uh, out there in the popular culture here, people were like, okay, finally, we'll be able to dance and not be harassed. But there's some question about legalities of the size of the venue or the zoning thing. So it's still like footloose at some of these places in Brooklyn. So what is the final word on the cabaret law and what is coming in order to make it more expansive so you can dance freely everywhere? you go well I mean I'll, I'll just lead into allowing you to explain it a little further I think when the repeal happened mm -hmm. it was obviously a great cause for celebration it was an antiquated law that had its roots in racial and LGBTQ issues right. and oppression but I think it also opened the door for more confusion um, as far as what it really meant mm -hmm. just because there's no need for a permit to dance per se you still need to make sure that you're properly zoned that there is proper egress sprinkler systems that the method of operation is properly checked on your state liquor authority application. So there's still a lot of requirements in order to be a licensed establishment to dance. However, I know that it also opened the door to make some additional changes and to really look at zoning and other provisions that might also continue to relax what those restrictions are. 
Yeah, the, the cabaret law is a, another bureaucratic hurdle that businesses had to go through in order to open their doors and allow dancing. There have been a handful of venues that just opened over the past year in Brooklyn that did not have to apply for that license and just made it much easier for them to open their doors months months in advance and, yeah. and save them thousands of dollars in rent that they probably wouldn't have been able to recuperate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, it's the notion of needing a license to dance. I think that uh, you know New York City being a sanctuary city, being a progressive city, uh, we shouldn't have laws in the books that oppress people from being able to get up and and, and dance. Um, but yes, there is a larger conversation. Zoning is still playing a, a role. Uh, you're only open uh, allowed to open uh, nightclubs and dance clubs right. in certain zones of the city. And we're going to explore on how we can expand that to make sure that you know the smaller venues outside of those zones can allow dancing without fear of the dance police coming in and shutting them down. So knowing that the nightlife world is its own separate entity, there are some things that we are looking at on a universal scale. And one of them is really doing better following this Me Too movement that we're in the middle of right now. And to that end, you've introduced some really significant legislation to really set a tone for the way things are going to be moving forward in New York City nightlife. You want to explain that to us? Yeah. So nightlife, I believe, uh, not only provides a space for people to to let loose. I think it also they also serve a, a major role in, in building communities and, and playing a role in in setting social examples of how the city should move forward, right? For example, I'm, I have a bill that I introduced that bans plastic straws. All of these nightlife venues that believe that we should be more environmentally conscious are removing straws without the bill even passing yet. So I introduced a bill that would require every establishment to post signage around harassment and consent. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I, I, I've gotten a lot of receptive uh, responses from these venues because they want to provide a safe space. Right. There's no reason anyone should feel that they can't go out alone, sit at a bar, without the fear of being harassed. That's right? worker and patrons. Workers and patrons. So my bill would, would require every business to put signage up uh, informing the patron that, that they're in a safe space and what to do if they feel harassed. But also it will serve as a reminder to those individuals that mm-hmm. want to get a little aggressive that they're being watched as well and that the, 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 the club is not going to tolerate any uh, misbehavior in their gotcha. space. Just like the nightmare position, it's an idea whose time has come. Mm-hmm. Thanks so much for joining us. We Thanks appreciate so it. Thank you, man. Us. All right. And now some news and notes. If you haven't heard, there's a visitor in Central Park that has everyone saying, what the duck? A mandarin duck, a perching duck species found in East Asia, has been spotted in the park, and it's causing a bit of a stir. The duck has a band around its ankle, which to those in the know signals that at some point he was held in captivity. Escapee mandarin ducks are actually a pretty frequent occurrence, and this isn't the first time one's been spotted in the United States. No surprise, wild ducks lead to more wild ducks, and there's been a few sighted in Black Mountain, North Carolina. A free-flying feral population of several hundred mandarins exist in California's Sonoma County, and as many as 7,000 wild mandarins can be found in Britain. In traditional Chinese culture, mandarin ducks are believed to mate for life, so they're regarded as a symbol for marital bliss and fidelity. As for the mandarin duck in Central Park, now we know for certain that he's single and presumably ready to mingle. Thanks for watching 112BK. We'll be back next week when we'll talk about the Trump administration's threat to transgender folks 
Plus, we'll meet the author of Ariel Sampson, Freelance Rabbi, written by a young, black, orthodox, and yes, freelance rabbi. See you then. One One Two BK is hosted by Ashley Ford, but hosted by me, Brian Lyons, today. It's written and produced by Ross Tuttle, also produced by Fred Brown, Shireen Bargi, Isabel Alcantara, Ariana Rosas, Naeem Van, and Emily Bogosian. It's recorded by Eric Hagasag, Clinton Filson Jr., and Antonio M. Rosario. And it's edited by Mira Al-Rahim. It's executive produced by Jonathan Leaf, Aziz Aisham, and Sasha Mathias.